Hi, y'all. I know how excited you are to get this new book. It, is, it truly is my most beloved book ever. Um, I do want you to keep in mind it was the book takes place in the 1950s in Alabama, small town Alabama. Uh, and it was written in 1963, I believe. I'm going to have to check on that. And it was banned for racial themes and uh, uh, reference to rape and adult content not suitable for a young age. But I read this book at eight years old. I understood it. Scout in this book is six. And she learns a lot life lessons in this book. So, you've heard the first chapter. And now we're on to the second. Let's go. Do you know that you record much better if you hit the frickin' record button? Anyway. Chapter 2 of To Kill a Mockingbird by Hopper Lee. Dill left us in September to return to Meridian. We saw him off on the five o'clock bus, and I was miserable without him until it occurred to me that I would be starting school in a week. I never looked forward to anything in my life. Hours of wintertime had found me in the treehouse, looking over at the schoolyard, spying over the multitudes of children through a two-power telescope Jim had given me, learning their games, following Jim's red jacket through the wriggling circles blind man's bluff, secretly sharing in their misfortunes and minor victories. I longed to join them. Jim condescended to take me to school on the first day, job usually done by one's parents, but Atticus said Jim would be delighted to show me where my room was. I think some money exchanged hands in, his, in this transaction. For as we trotted around the corner past the Radley house, I heard an unfamiliar jingle in Jim's pockets. When we slowed to a walk around the edge of the schoolyard, Jim was careful to explain that during school hours I was not to bother him. I was not to approach him with requests to enact a chapter of Tarzan and the Ant-Man to embarrass him with references to his private life or to tag along behind him at recess at noon. I was to stick to the first grade and he was to stick to the fifth. In short, I was to leave him alone. You mean we can't play no more, I asked. We'll do like we always do at home, he said, but you'll see, school's different. It certainly was. Before the first morning was over, Miss Caroline Fisher, our teacher, hauled me up to the front of the room, patted my hand, palmed my hand with a ruler, then made me stand in the corner until noon. Miss Caroline was no more than twenty-one. She had bright auburn hair, pinkish cheeks, and wore crimson fingernail polish. She also wore high-heeled pumps and a red and white striped dress. She looked and smelled like a peppermint drop. She boarded across the street, one door down from us, in Miss Maudie Atkinson's upstairs front room. When Miss Maudie introduced us to her, Jim was in a haze for days. 
Miss Caroline printed her name on the blackboard and said, This says I am Miss Caroline Fisher. I am from North Alabama, from Winston County. The class murmured apprehensively. She could prove to harbor her share of peculiarities in indigenous to that region. When Alabama seceded from the Union on January 11, 1861, Winston County seceded from Alabama, and every child in Macomb County knew it. North Alabama was full of liquor interests, big mules, steel companies, Republicans, professors, and other persons of no background. Miss Caroline began the day by reading a story about cats. The cats had long conversations with one another. They wore cunning little clothes and lived in warm house beneath the kitchen stove. By the time Mrs. Cat called the drugstore for an order of chocolate malted mice, the class was wiggling like a bucket full of catabelle worms. Miss Caroline seemed unaware that the ragged denim shirt and flower sack skirted first grade, most of whom had chopped cotton and fed hogs from the time they were able to walk were immune to imaginative literature. Miss Caroline came to the end of the story and said, Oh my, wasn't that nice? Then she went to the blackboard, printed the alphabet in enormous square capitals, turned to the class and asked, Does anyone know what these are? Everybody did. Most of the first grade had failed it last year. I suppose she chose me because she knew my name. I read the alphabet. A faint line between appeared between her eyebrows. And after making me read most of my first reader and, and the stock market quotations from Mobile Register aloud, she discovered that I was illiterate and looked at me with more than a faint distaste. Miss Caroline told me tell my father not to teach me any more. It would interfere with my reading. Teach me, I said in surprise. He hadn't taught me nothing, Miss Caroline. Atticus don't have time to teach me anything, I added, when Miss Caroline smiled and shook her head. Why, he's so tired at night, he just sits in the living room and reads. Well, if he did not teach you, who did? Miss Caroline asked good-naturedly. Somebody did. You weren't born reading the Mobile Register. Jim says I was. He read in a book where I was a bullfinch instead of a finch. Jim says my name is really Jean Louise Bullfinch. That I got swapped when I was born and I'm really a... Miss Caroline apparently thought I was lying. Let's not get our imaginations run away with us, dear, she said. Tell your father not to teach you any more. It's best you begin reading with a fresh mind. You tell him I'll take over from here and try to undo the damage. Ma'am? Your father does not know how to teach. You can have a teach now. You can have a seat now. I mumbled that I was sorry and retired meditating upon my crime. I never deliberately learned to read. But somehow I'd been wallowing illiteracy in the daily papers, illicitly in the daily papers, in the long hours of church. Is that where I learned? I could not remember not being able to read the hymns. Now I was 
compelled to think about it. Reading was something that just came to me, as learning to fasten the seat belt, uh, fasten the seat in my union suit without looking round, or achieving two bows, snarls, shoelaces. I could not remember when the lines above Atticus's moving fingers separated into words, but I had started at them all evenings in my memory, listening to the news of the day, bills being enacted into laws, the diaries of Lorenzo Dow, anything Atticus happened to be reading when I crawled into his lap every night. Until I feared I would lose it, I never loved to read. One does not love breathing. I knew I annoyed Miss Caroline, so I let well enough alone and started out the window until recess, where Jim cut me from the convey of first graders in the schoolyard. He asked how I was getting along. I told him, if I didn't have to stay, I'd leave, Jim. That damn lady says Atticus been teaching me to read and for him to stop it. Don't worry, Scout, Jim comforted me. Our teacher says Miss Caroline's introducing a new way of teaching. She learned about it in college. It'll be all about grades soon. You won't have to learn much out of books that way. If it's like you want to learn about cows, you go milk one, see? Yeah, Jim, but I don't want to study cows. I... Sure you do. You have to learn about cows. They're a big part of Macon County. I consented myself with asking Jim if he had lost his damn mind. I'm trying to tell you the new way they're teaching the first grade. Stubborn. It's the Dewey Decimal System. I never questioned Jim's pronunciations, but I saw no reason to begin it now. The Dewey Decimal System consisted in part of Miss Caroline waving cards at us on which were printed the cat, rat, man, and you. No commenting seemed to be expected of us, and the class received these impressionistic revelations in silence. And I was bored, so I began writing a letter to Dill. Miss Caroline caught me writing and told me tell my father to stop teaching me. Besides, she says, we don't write in the first grade we print. You won't learn to write until you're in the third grade. Calpurnia was to blame for this. She kept me from driving her crazy on rainy days, I guess. She would set me at a writing task by scrawling the alphabet firmly across the top of the table, then copying out the chapter of the Bible beneath it. If I reproduced it to her penmanship satisfactorily, she rewarded me with an open-faced sandwich of bread, butter, and sugar. In Calpurnia's teaching, there was, there was no sentimentality. I seldom pleased her, and she seldom rewarded me. Everyone who goes home to lunch, hold up your hands, said Miss Caroline, breaking into my new grudge against Calpurnia. The town children did so. And she looked us over. Whoever brings his lunch, put it on top of his desk. Molasses buckets appeared from nowhere, and the ceiling danced with the metallic light. Miss Caroline walked up and down the rows, peering and poking into lunch containers, nodding if the contents pleased her, frowning a little at others. She stopped at Walter Cunningham's desk. 
where's yours? she asked. Walter's Cunningham's face told everybody in the first grade he had hookworms. The absence of shoes told us how he got them. People got hookworms going barefoot in barnyards and hogwallas. If Walter had owned any shoes, he would have worn them out on the first day of school and then discarded them until midwinter. He did have on a pair of clean shirt and neatly mended overalls. Did you forget your lunch this morning, dear? asked Miss Caroline. Walter looked straight ahead. I saw a muscle jump in his skinny jaw. Did you forget it this morning? asked Miss Caroline. Walter's jaw twitched again. Give him, he finally mumbled. Miss Caroline went to her desk and opened her purse. Here's a quarter, she said. Go down, go and eat downtown today. You can pay me back tomorrow. Walter shook his head. No, thank you, ma'am, he drawled softly. Impatience crept into Miss Caroline's voice. Here, Walter, come and get it. Walter shook his head again. When Walter shook his head a third time, someone whispered, Go on, tell her, Scout. I turned around and saw most of the town people in the entire bus delegation looking at me. Miss Carolyn and I had conferred twice already, and they were looking at me in the innocent assurance that the familiarity breeds understanding. I rose graciously on Walter's behalf. Um, Miss Caroline, what is it, Jean Louise? Miss Caroline, he's a Cunningham. I sat back down. What, Jean Louise? I thought I had made things sufficiently clear. It was clear enough to the rest of us. Walter Cunningham was sitting there, lying his head off. He didn't forget his lunch. He didn't have any. And he had none today, nor would he have any tomorrow or the next day. He probably never seen three quarters together at the same time in his whole life. I tried again. Walter is one of the Cunninghams, Miss Caroline. I beg your pardon, Jean Louise. That's okay, ma'am. You'll get to know all the county folk after a while. The Cunninghams never took anything they can't pay back. No church baskets, no script stamps. They never took anything off nobody. And if they get along with what they ever they have, and if they don't, and they don't have much, but they get along on it. My special knowledge of the Cunningham tribe. One branch, that is, was gained from the events of, one, of last winter. Walter's father was one of Atticus's clients. After a dreary conversation in our living room, one night about his entailment, before Mr. Cunningham left, Mr. Finch, I'll know when I'll be able to pay you. Let that be the least of your worries, Walter, Atticus said. When I asked Jim what entailment was, Jim described it as a condition of having your tail in a crack. I asked if Atticus, I asked Atticus if Mr. Cunningham would ever pass. Not in money, Atticus said, but before the year's out, I've been paid. Just you watch. And we watched. One morning, Jim and I found a load of stove wood in the backyard. Later, a sack of hickory nuts appeared on the back steps. With Christmas came a crate of simlax and holly. That spring, we found a croaker stock full of turnip greens. 
Atticus said Mr. Cunningham had more than paid him. Why does he pay you like that, I asked. Because it's the only way he knows he can't pay me. He's got no money. Are we poor, Atticus? Atticus nodded. We are indeed. Jim's nose wrinkled. Are we as poor as the Cunninghams? Not exactly. The Cunninghams are country folk, farmers, and the crash hit them hardest. Atticus said professional people were poor because the farmers were poor. As Macomb County was a farm county, nickels and dimes were hard to come by for doctors and dentists and lawyers. Entailment was, young, was only a part of Mr. Cunningham's vexations. The acres not entailed were mortgaged to the hilt, and the little cash he made went to interest. If he held, if he held his mouth right, Mr. Cunningham get a WPA job, but his land would go to ruin if he had it left, if, if he had left it, and he was willing to go hungry to keep his land, voted as, and voting as he pleased. Mr. Cunningham, said Atticus, came from a set breed of men. As the Cunninghams had no money to pay for a lawyer, they simply paid us what they had. You know, said Atticus, Dr. Reynolds works the same way. He charges some folks a bushel of potatoes for delivery of a baby. Miss Scout, if, if you give me your attention, I'll tell you what entailment is. Jim's definitions are very nearly accurate sometimes. I could explain these things to Miss Caroline, but... And I would have saved myself some inconvenience, Miss Caroline's subsequent mortification, but it was beyond my ability to explain things as well as Atticus. So I said, You're shaming him, Miss Caroline. He ain't got a quarter home to bring you because he ain't. You can't use any stove wood. Miss Caroline stood stock still, then grabbed me by the collar and hauled me back to her desk. Jean, Louise, I have had just about enough of you this morning, she said. You're starting off on the wrong foot in every way, my dear. Hold out your hand. I thought she was going to spit in it, which is the only reason it may come you held out your hand. It's a time-honored method of sealing oral contracts. Wondering what the bargain we, we had made, I turned to the class for an answer. But the class looked back at me in puzzlement. Miss Caroline picked up a ruler, gave me half a dozen quick little pats, and then told me to stand in the corner. A storm of laughter broke loose when I finally, it finally occurred to me that Miss Caroline had whipped me. When Miss Caroline threatened it with a, with a similar fate, the first grade exploded again, becoming cold sober only when a shadow of Miss Blount fell over them. Miss Blount, a native mate, Macomian had yet uninitiated in the mysteries of the decimal system appeared at the door hands, hands on hips, and announced, If I hear another sound out of this room, I will burn everybody in it. Miss Caroline, the sixth grade cannot concentrate on pyramids for all this racket. My sojourn in the corner was a short one, saved by the bell. Miss Caroline watched the class file out for lunch. I was the last to leave.
I saw her slink down into her chair and bury her head into her arms. Had her contact, conduct been more friendly towards me, I would have felt sorry for her. She is a pretty little thing. Chapter 3 Catching Walter Cunningham in the schoolyard gave me some pleasure. But when I was rubbing his nose in the dirt, Jim came by and told him to stop. You're bigger than he is, he said. He's as old as you, nearly, I said. He made me start off on the wrong foot. Let him go, Scout. Why? <sighs> he didn't have any lunch, I said, and I explained my involvement in, in Walter's dietary affairs. Walter picked himself up and was standing quietly listening to Jim and me. His fists were half cocked, as if expecting an onslaught from the both of us. I stomped at him to chase him away, but Jim put his hand out and stopped me. I examined Walter with an air of speculation. Your daddy, Mr. Walter Cunningham, from old Sacra? he asked. Walter nodded. He looked as if he had been raised on fish food. His eyes, as blue as Dill Harris's, were red-rimmed and watery. There was no color in his face except the tip of his nose, which was moistly pink. He fingered the strap of his overalls, nervously picking at the metal hooks. Jim suddenly grinned at him. Come on home, dinner with us, Walter, he said. We'll be glad to have you. Walter's face brightened and then darkened. Jim said, your daddy's a friend. My daddy's a friend of your daddy's. Scout here, she's crazy, but she won't fight you no more. I wouldn't be so certain of that, I mumbled. Jim's free disposition of my pledge irked me. But precious noontime minutes were ticking away. Yeah, Walter, I won't jump on you again. Don't you like butter beans? Our cow is a real good cook. Walter stood where he was, biting his lip. And I gave up, and we nearly went to the Radley place when Walter called. Hey, hey, I'm coming. When Walter caught up with us, Jim made pleasant conversation with us. I hate rooms there. Now, let me, let me guys, I'm going to break in in just a minute. I hate is, it, it's basically a, a, an evil spirit, a ghost. Um, I know my, I know my Irish people know it is a banshee um but yeah hey uh and in charleston where i'm from you you can paint your houses uh, a haint blue haint blue is like this bright blue color um i'll put a picture on twitter of the what haint blue is but it's to keep the haints away so h-a-i-n apostrophe t it's haint all right, sorry about that little uh, Southern history lesson. Hank lives there, he said cordially, pointing to the Radley house. Ever hear about him, Walter? Reckon I have, said Walter. 
almost died the first year I come to school and eat eating them pecans. Folks say they pisoned them and then they put them all over the school side of the fence. Jim seemed to have a rather fear of Boo Radley and now that Walter and I walked beside him. Indeed, Jim grew boastful. I went all the way up to the house once, he said to Walter. Anybody who went up to the house once I'll not still run past. Anyone who went Anyone who went up to the house once ought not still run every time he passes, I said to the clouds above. And who's running, Miss Pris? You are when ain't nobody looking. By the time we reached the front steps, Walter had forgotten he was a Cunningham. Jim ran into the kitchen and asked Calperny to set an extra plate. We had company. Atticus greeted Walter and began a discussion about crops neither Jim nor I could follow. Reason I can't pass the first grade, Mr. Finch, is I have to stay out over spring and help Papa with the chopping. But there's another house down, and that's field size. Did you pay a bushel of potatoes for him, I asked. But Atticus shook his head at me. While Walter piled his food on his plate, and Atticus talked together like two men to the wonderment of Jim and me, Atticus was expounding on farm problems when Walter interrupted and asked if there was any molasses in the house. Atticus summoned Calpurnia, who returned bearing the syrup pitcher. He stood waiting for Walter to help himself. Walter poured syrup on his vegetables, meat, with a generous hand. He probably would have poured it into his milk glass had I not asked what the Sam Hill he was doing. The silver saucer clattered when he replaced the pitcher, and he quickly put his hands in his lap, and he ducked his head. Atticus shook his head at me. But he gone and drowned his syrup in his dinner. I protested. He's poured it all over. That was when Calpurnia requested my presence in the kitchen. She was furious. And when she was furious, Calpurnia's grammar became erratic. When in the tran when in the tranquility, her grammar was as good as anybody's in makeup. Atticus said Calpurnia had more education than most colored folk. When she squinted down at me and the tiny lines around her eyes deepened, there's some folks who don't eat like us, she whispered fiercely. But you ain't called on to contradict them at the table when they don't. That boy's your company, and if he wants to eat up the tablecloth, you're going to let him, you hear? He ain't company, Cal. He's just a Cunningham. Hush your mouth. Don't matter who they are. Anybody set foot in this house is your company. And don't let me catch you remarking on their ways like you so high and mighty. Your folks better be... You folks might, might be better than the Cunninghams, but don't count for nothing the way you're disgracing them. And if you can't act to fit at the table, you can just sit here and eat at the kitchen. Calperna, Calpurnia sent me through the swinging door into the dining room 
with a stinging smack, I retrieved my plate and finished dinner in the kitchen. Thankful, though, I was spared the humiliation of facing them again. I told Calpurnia to just wait. I'd fix her. One of these days when she wasn't looking, I'm going to go off and drown myself in Barker's eating, and she'd be sorry. Besides, I added, she had already gotten me in trouble once today. She had taught me to write, and it was all her fault. Quit your fussing, she said. Jim and Walter returned to school ahead of me, staying behind to advise Atticus of Calpurnia's inquiries was worth a solitary sprint past the Radley place. She likes Jim better than she likes me anyway, I concluded, and suggested that Atticus lose no time in packing her off. Have you ever considered that Jim doesn't worry her half as much? Atticus' voice was flinty. I have no intention of getting rid of her, now or ever. We couldn't operate a single day without Cal. Have you ever thought about that? You ever think about how much Cal does for her? And you mind her, you hear? I returned to school and hated Calpurnia steadily until a sudden street shriek shattered my resentments. I looked up to see Miss Caroline standing in the middle of the room, sheer horror flooding her face. Apparently, she had revived enough to persevere in her profession. It's alive, she screamed. The male population of the class rushed as one to her assistance. Lord, I thought she's scared of a mouse. Little, little Chuck Little, whose patience with all living things was phenomenal, and said, Well, which way did he go, Miss Caroline? Tell us where he went. Quick, do you see? He turned to the little boy behind him. D.C., shut the door and we'll catch him quick. Quick, man, where'd he go? Miss Caroline pointed a shaking finger at the floor, nodded at nor at a desk, but a hulking individual unknown to me. Little Chuck's face contracted and he said gently, You mean him, ma'am? Yes, am he's alive. He scare you in some way. Miss Caroline said desperately. I was just walking by and it crawled out of his hair. Crawled out of his hair. Little Chuck grinned broadly. There ain't no, no need to fear cootie, ma'am. Ain't you ever seen one? Now don't you be afraid. You just go back to your desk and cheat you some more. Little Chuck Little was another member of the population who if you did not know where his next meal was coming from but he was a born gentleman he put his hand under her elbow and led miss caroline back to the front of the class now don't you fret ma'am he said there ain't no need to fear cootie i'll go fetch you some cool water the cootie's host showed not the faintest interest in the fervor he had wrought he searched the scalp above his forehead and located the gas pinched it between his thumb and forefinger. Miss Caroline watched the process in horrid fascination. Little Chuck brought water in a paper cup. She drank it gratefully. Finally, she found her voice. What is your name, son? She asked. The boy blinked. 
Who? Me? Miss Caroline nodded. Burr's Ewell. Miss Caroline inspected her robe book. I have a Ewell here, but I don't have a first name. How do you spell your name? I don't know how. They just call me Burris at home. Well, uh, Burris, said Miss Caroline, I think we'd better excuse you for the rest of the afternoon. I want you to go home and wash your hair. From her desk, she produced a thick volume, leafed through the pages, and read for a home moment. A good home remedy for you, Burris, is to go home and wash your hair with lice soap. When you're done, treat your scalp with kerosene. What fur, Mrs. To get rid of the, uh, cooties. You see, Miss Burris, other children might catch them, and we, you wouldn't want that, would you? The boy stood up. He was the filthiest human I'd ever seen. His neck was dark gray. The backs of his hands were rusty, and his fingernails were black deep into the quick. He peered at Miss Caroline from fist-sized clean space on his face. No one noticed him, probably, because Miss Caroline and I entertained the class for most of the morning. And Burris, please bathe yourself before you come back tomorrow. The boy laughed rudely. You ain't sending me home, Mrs. I was on the verge of leaving. I'd done my time for this year. Miss Caroline looked puzzled. What do you mean by that? The boy did not answer. He gave a short, contemptuous snort. One of the elderly members of the class answered her. He's one of the Ewells, ma'am. And I wondered if this explanation would be as unsuccessful as my attempt. But Miss Carolina was willing to listen. Whole school's full of them. They come first day every year and then leave. The Trump lady gets them because she threatens them with the sheriff. But then she gives up trying to hold them. She reckons if she carried out the law just getting their names on the roll and running them out on the first day, you're supposed to mark them absent the rest of the year. What about their parents? asked Miss Caroline in genuine concern. Ain't got no mama, was the answer, and their pa's right contentious. Bursey well was flattered by the recital. Been come to the first day of first grade for three years now, he said. Reckon I'm I'm smart this year and they'll promote me to the second. Miss Caroline said, Sit back down, please, Burris. And the moment she said it, she knew she had made a serious mistake. The boy's condensation flashed to anger. You try and make me, Mrs. Little Chuck Litter got to his feet. Let him go, ma'am, he said. He's a mean one, and a hard, hard down mean one. He's liable to start something, and there's some little folks here. He was among the most diminutive of men, but when Burris Ewell turned towards him, Little Chuck's right hand went up to his pocket. Watch your step, Burris, he said. I'll soon kill you as you look at you. I'll soon kill you as you look at you. Now go on home. Burris seemed to be afraid of a child half his height, and Miss Caroline took advantage of his indecision. Burris, go home. 
If you if you don't, I'll call the principal. She said, I'll have to report this anyway. The boy snorted and slouched leisurely at the door. Safely out of range, he turned and shouted, Report and be damned to ye! Ain't y'all snot no slut of a school teacher ever been born that can make me do nothing? You ain't making me go nowhere, missus. You just remember that. You ain't making me go nowhere. He waited until he was sure she was crying, then shuffled out of the building. As soon as we were clustered around her desk, trying in various ways to comfort her, he was a real mean one. Blow the belt. You ain't called on to teach folks like that. Them ain't Maycomb's ways, Miss Caroline, not really. Now don't you fret, ma'am, Miss Caroline, why don't you read us a story? That cat thing was a f real fine this morning. Miss Caroline smiled and blew her nose and said, Thank you, darlings. Dispersed us and opened a book and mystified the first grade with a long narrative about a toad frog that lived in a hall. When I passed the Radley place for the for the fourth time that day, twice at a full gallop, my gloom had deepened to match the house. If the remainder of the school year was fraught with dramas the first day, perhaps it would be mildly entertaining, but the prospect of spending nine months refraining from reading and writing made me think of running away. By late afternoon, my traveling plans were complete. Jim and I raced to each other's sidewalk to meet Atticus, who was coming home from work. I didn't give him much a race. It was our habit to run and meet Atticus the moment we saw him round the post office corner in the distance. Atticus seemed to have forgotten my noontime fall from grace. He was full of questions about school. My replies were monosymbolic. And he did not press me. Perhaps Calpurnia, since my day, had been a grim one. She let me watch her fix supper. Shut your eyes and open your mouth and I'll give you a surprise, she said. It was not often she made crackling bread. And she said she never had time. But with both of us at school today, it had been an easy one for her. And she knew that I loved crackling bread. Missed you today, she said. The house so lonesome, long about two o'clock, I had to turn on the radio. Why? Jim and me ain't ever in the house unless it's raining. I know, she said. One G's always calling in the distance, and I wonder how much of the day I've spent calling after you. Well, she said, getting up from the kitchen chair, it's enough time to make a pan of crackling bread, I reckon. You run along now and let me get supper on the table. Calpurnia bent down and kissed me. I ran along, wondering what had come over her. She wanted to make up with me, that was it. She had always been too hard on me, and she had, had at last seen the error of her fractitious ways. She was so sorry and too stubborn to say so. I was weary from today's crimes. After supper, Atticus sat down with the paper and called, Scout, ready to read. The Lord sent me more than I could bear, and I went to the front porch, and Atticus followed me. 
something wrong scout i told scout i didn't feel very well and i didn't want to go to school any more if it was all right with him atticus sat down on the swing and crossed his legs his fingers wandered to his pocket watch he said that was the only way he could think he waited in amicable silence and i sought to reinforce my position you never went to school and you did all right so i'll just stay home too you can teach me like granddaddy taught you and uncle jack no i can't said atticus i have to make a living besides they'd put me in jail if i kept you at home dose of magnesia for you tonight and school tomorrow i'm feeling all right really mm-hmm thought so what's the matter bit by bit i told him about the day's misfortunes and he, she said if you taught me that you taught me all wrong and if we can't read any more ever please don't send me back there please sir atticus stood up and walked to the end of the porch when he completed his examination of the wisteria vine he strolled back to me first of all he said you can learn a simple trick scout you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view sir until you climb into their skin and walk around in it atticus said i learned many things today and miss caroline learned several things herself she learned not to hand something to a cunningham for one thing but if walter and i had put ourselves in her shoes we would have seen it was an honest mistake on her part we could not expect her to learn all of maycomb's ways in one day we could not hold her responsible when she didn't know better well i'll be dogged i said i didn't know no better than not to read to her she held me responsible listen atticus i don't have to go to school i was bursting with a sudden thought burris ewell remember he just goes to school on the first day the truant lady reckons he she carries out the law when he gets his name on the roll you can't do that scout atticus said sometimes it's better to bend the law a little in special cases in your case the law remains rigid so school you must go i don't see why i have to go when he doesn't then listen the ewells have been a disgrace maycomb for three generations none of them have done an honest day's work in his recollection he said that some christmas when he was getting rid of the tree he would take me with him and show me where and how they lived they were people but they lived like animals they can go to school any time they want to when they showed the faintest symptom of wanting an education said atticus but there are ways of keeping them in school by force but it's silly to force people like the ewells into a new environment if i don't go to school tomorrow you force me let us leave it at this atticus said dryly you miss scout finch are common folk you must obey the law he said 
the Ewells are members of an exclusive society made up of Ewells. In certain circumstances, the common folk judiciously allow them certain privileges by the simple method of becoming blind to the Ewells' activities. They didn't have to go to school for one thing. Another thing, Mr. Bob Ewell, Burris's father, was permitted to hunt trap out of season. Atticus, that's bad, I said. In Maycomb County, hunting out of season was a misdemeanor law, a capital felony in the eyes of the populace. It's against the law, all right, said my father, and it's certainly bad. But when a man spends his relief checks on green whiskey, his children have a way of crying from hunger pains. I don't know if any I don't know if any landowner around here who begrudges those children any game their father can hit. But Mr. Ewell shouldn't do that. Well, of course he shouldn't. But he'll never change his ways. Are you going to take out your disapproval on his children? No, sir, I mumbled and made a final stand. But if I'm going to keep going to school, we can't read ever no more. That's really bothering you, isn't it? Yes, sir. When Atticus looked down at me, I saw the expression on his face that he always made me expect something. Do you know what a compromise is? He asked. Bending the law? No. An agreement reached by mutual concessions. It works this way, he said. If you concede the necessity of going to school, we will go on reading every night, just as we always have. Is it a bargain? Yes, sir. We'll consider it sealed without the usual formality, Atticus said when he saw me preparing to spit. As I opened the front door, Atticus said, By the way, Scout, you're not, you better not say anything at school about our agreement. Why not? I'm afraid our activities would be received with considerable, considerable disprobation by the mo more learned authorities. Jim and I were accustomed to our father's last will and testament dictation, and we were all times free to interrupt Atticus for a translation when it was beyond our understanding. Huh, sir? I never went to school, he said, but I have a feeling that if you tell Miss Caroline that we read every night, she'll get after me, and I don't want her after me. Atticus set us in fits that evening, gravely reading columns of print about the man who sat on a flagpole for no discernible reason, which was enough for Jim to spend the following Saturday aloft on the treehouse. Jim sat there after breakfast until sunset, and probably would have remained there overnight had Atticus not severed his supply lines. I spent most of the day climbing up and down, running errands for him, providing him with literature, nourishment, and water, carrying him up blankets for the night when Atticus said I, if I paid no attention to him, Jim would come down. Atticus was right.
Alright, that's the end of tonight's reading. Uh, I'm actually recording this on Monday. I had a very nice birthday. And uh, this will be um, published on Wednesday the 4th. Alright. Thanks for listening, you guys.